0: Good. Uh, This morning, I want to ask you um, to firstly give me 35 minutes of your time. And uh, where's Tyler? Just show me when I'm done. Uh, (laughs) And I want to ask you to do something that I don't normally ask. Um, I'm going to deal with a topic this morning that um, if we go into these little conversations, some people draw on some of the files that they think they know. Um, And they sort of think, okay, I'm going to draw this file because that was my experience in the past. And I'm just going to have that as the only reference of how I will evaluate what is being said this morning. Can I ask you to be open this morning? So that's the first thing. The second thing that I want to ask is if you have any questions, comments or concerns, can I ask you to uh, differ in relationship uh, I think in church, uh, we've, ha- we've got the incredible ability, and I'm not speaking about this church, but we differ outside of relationship, um, that's called gossip, um, and some carry the spiritual gift of gossip really well, um, I want to ask you not to engage in that, um, but to actually, if you have any questions or any con- come and differ in relationship, is that fair? Um, but I'm convinced that, th- that there's something in what I'm about to share this morning that um, at the least help me understand a few things and i'm trusting that it would do the same for you so we've been spending some time uh, on the notion that the topic called you have been called and and someone pointed out and i want to show you something that if you take the c and the e out who's called all are called it's cute <laughs> so you can deal with that um but basically, we, we started in week one where Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 1, you have been called by God. I think week one, it was very important for me that everyone connects um, to the concept of being called uh, in some way, shape or form. That you need to, to live from that, from that perspective that you've been called by God. And the implication of being called by God is that every part of your life will be synchronized to this calling. Um, It's important for us to understand that because the synchronization happens with God's ultimate purpose, and that was week two. So we said um, that Ephesians 3.20 challenges us with something very specific. Paul says, Now all glory to God who is able through His mighty power at work within us, that a big part of, of, of us entering into this understanding with calling is to embrace God's work in us. And our ability to embrace God's work in us actually then releases the capacity to trust Him for infinitely more than what we can ask or think or imagine. Now, I want to state the obvious. If somewhere, somehow, God's work in you isn't growing, guess what we don't have? We don't have a growing expectation about what God can do through us. And then we... Regulate stuff to the lowest common denominator. And I'll say something about that a bit later on this morning. But a big part of the understanding, and, and I love, this is a big word, I love how Paul plays around with what we call a Trinitarian concept. Um, this morning we'll look at two of them. But look at what he did in Ephesians 4. He says there is one body and one spirit. The body is the church. So there's one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to. One glorious hope. Bless me so much this morning um, as I walked into the office. AJ said to me, Clinton, there's a church in Wollongong this morning that is um, introducing the spheres of influence conversation in their church this morning. You know what I love? I love it when we think about the fact that we're doing stuff because we planned, we thought about it, and suddenly you, you hear worldwide some of this is happening, and you realize that because we are one body, one church worldwide, and because God's spirit is in the church, guess what will happen? We'll see synchronization with the one hope that we're called to. And that's why in our purpose statement, we wanted to make sure that we have a purpose statement that actually covers the big calling of God throughout the Bible. We didn't want to have one a, a kind of Disney, Star Wars purpose statement that isolates us from all other churches. Because we're one church. So... There's one body and one spirit, just as, there, um, as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is also, what? One Lord. Kyrios um, is the Greek word. Jesus is the one that we call Lord. Um, if you haven't done so, come chat to me afterwards. It's a good thing to do. <laughs> um, he actually saves. Um, and, and Christ in terms of who he is, is the Lord that is presented to throughout the New Testament. That's interesting how the, how, how the theological concepts of faith and one baptism is all connected to Christ being Lord. One of the things when, when I read this is, uh, that just struck me is that how often we take the word being Christ-centered as exclusively focusing on Christ. Where Christ-centered in its essence means integrating the work of the Spirit and the Father into a whole. And a lot of churches that focus on being Christ-centered has a lot to say about faith and baptism and what it looks like. But they negate the full implication of the work of the Spirit and the work of the Father. Um, and then Paul goes and he says, there is one, or there is one God and Father of all who is over all and and in all we say that when we think about god's purpose um if you read colossians 1 there is an incredible understanding that god actually sees in his full the full extent of of redemption the fact that all things will be brought back to christ that's that's the story 1 corinthians 15 ends that way Um, colossians 1 there's something about the restoration of all things that we need to consider, because um, for so long, personally, I was brought up in a church that thought that going to heaven is the ultimate aim of salvation. But if you read the New Testament, there's so much more in it. It's that you're actually being called, you've been called on this planet, that after salvation, there's incredible stuff that is awaiting you. And you can't just sit on the bus stop of life waiting to die. There's a big part of that that I believe is one of the reasons why we've lost our younger generations out of church, because we told them, get saved and wait until you die. And that just doesn't inspire anyone. <laughs> didn't inspire me, that's why I went for, for a loop. But when I got saved, I realized that salvation was a doorway that introduced me to calling. And calling brought me to a place where I realized that I need the full, a full understanding of the Trinity: God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, in my life. Um, in in that space. So, for a lot of people, we have to rethink um, the situation that we're in. And and I don't want to say this lightly. And I'm saying this with a lot of, uh, I'm always, I'm, I'm nervous saying this, because the. Um, The fear in my my mind is there that if we don't grapple, if we don't consider the implication that we have been called as church to the world, if we fall into the trap of thinking that this is it, what we're seeing coming together as church and, and actually building churches based on the needs of its members, not based on the opportunities of what sits out there, then we'll reduce the church to something that it was never meant to be. And, and a big part of, of that is that, then we start asking questions, how do we change people? But I want to suggest something different this morning. is not just how do we change people, how do we change our understanding of the situation? Uh, they did an interesting study many years ago when um, the Mel Gibson movie Payback came out. I still haven't seen it, so um, don't see this as me validating the movie. Um, but they decided to, um, to sponsor uh, in a cinema, everyone that wanted to buy tickets, they said, we're going to give them the, their movie experience for free. We're going to give them popcorn, drinks, and they won't have to pay for their movie. And what they did is they had two containers of popcorn, one this size and one smaller. The, the test was both containers were too big to finish, so you couldn't finish it. Even AJ wouldn't be able to finish the small container, so that was that was part of what what they wanted to test in that we wanted to make sure that you can't finish it finish it, but they wanted to test what bigger containers has on people's eating um, habits so they did something very interesting. they popped the popcorn two weeks before leaving the so they wanted to make sure that the popcorn wasn't good quality so people weren't eating a lot of popcorn because it was the best popcorn in the world it was the worst popcorn so it was chewy, it was old it <laughs> so gave people access, free movie, here's your popcorn and they found afterwards that people with large containers ate 53 percent more than people with the smaller containers that having big, a bigger plate, a bigger whatever has a direct impact on your eating habits but then a clever guy came because then they asked how do we change it and he said no, Sometimes, because they asked the question, how do we change the people? And a clever guy came in and said, sometimes it's not about changing the people, it's about changing the situation. That, just give them smaller plates. It's almost futile to tell them that if a big plate presents itself, that you shouldn't just give them smaller plates. When I thought about that, I thought how many times we could fall into the trap of thinking we've got to change the people where actually what we need to do is we need to change their perception of the situation. That church does not constitute, and you would hear this often we, we are saying that, us coming to church, us being around is so much more than just the, um, the total needs of this community. We're a missional community. So yes, we need to care for one another, we need to look after one another, all the one another concepts needs to be there, but if we are not missional, we could fall into the trap thinking that what happens inside is the situation that we need to manage, not realizing that God has called us to the world. And I am absolutely convinced that once you grapple with the fact that you have been called, every one of us in every situation, you would consider your need for God's empowerment at a different level, that if you walk into your business or university or school or family or wherever, and you realise that you are called to that environment, suddenly you're going to ask questions of God. I know I can't do what only you can do. I need to trust you for your empowerment in this situation. So it breaks that divide divide between what is sacred and what is spiritual, because God is in all, overall, and now, specific scripture that I want to read, and we'll unpack some of this this morning. Before I get into it, maybe just to say that 1 Corinthians 12, there's two things that we need to understand in the book of Corinthians. It was a church that had issues. Um, and I don't have time to unpack all the issues this morning. Uh, when it comes to chapter 12, it actually deals with the understanding of how spiritual gifts um, and the exercise of spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of tongues, was exercised. So Paul had to deal with some order. Some, let's, let's just consider how all of this works together. Now, a good thing to understand about the Bible um, is that sometimes we take the Bible and we realize while reading that Paul or whoever, the Bible addresses some very specific issues relating to that culture and that time. Is that fair? And we need to understand what it actually deals with in it. But then we need to understand that sometimes, not sometimes, the Bible is actually a book that helps us in understanding the specific needs of a specific culture in a specific time. It actually builds the bridge and inspires us to understand how do we deal with certain things in our time, in our space, and in our journey. So one of the things that they had in the, in, in the Corinthian church was a challenge with temple prostitution, that they had to consider what this looks like. As far as I know, that's not part of our challenges right here. Uh, we don't have a class for temple prostitution um, and what, do, what we do, do with it. So we need to build a bridge from what is specific to the context to what God is inspiring for us. And that's not a perfect science. So the safe, safest thing to do is just to go back and say, no, let's just focus on the specific and that's all we do. But the Bible is the inspired word of God so we need to build a bridge to uh, in understanding what is this actually saying to us so Paul comes and he says now dear, dear brothers and sisters regarding your question so about three four times in the book of Corinthians Paul addresses certain questions so he introduces it by now dear brothers and sisters that means we've walked on from one subject to another so he says now dear brothers and sisters regarding your question about the special ability the spirit gives I don't want you to misunderstand this you know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. Now that's important to understand because they were worshiping certain speechless idols. But one of the ways that the worship services of those pagan um, idols were, were presented is that people, were started, people started speaking in different tongues or languages or all those kind of different expressions. So the idols were, were, were speechless, but the people were not. So Paul is saying, I want I want you to understand that in those moments, some of the things that actually happened is they started cursing or, or saying that this isn't a God and that isn't a God. And, that, and, and he says, you, you've got to realize that when coming together, no one um, speaking by the spirit of God will curse Jesus and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So he's dealing with something very specific, the translation from some of the activities and I don't have enough time this morning to unpack that into this, but there was something specific of how the pagan worship was translating itself into Christian worship. Is that fair? Okay. Then he comes with something beautiful. He says there are different kinds of spiritual gifts. Now, these two references differ. In the beginning, um, verse one, he says the special abilities of the spirit It's a different Greek word to the one that he uses here. So he's not speaking about the same concept. He says, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. And he says, there are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. And God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in, in all of us. What are we seeing? Same thing that we saw in Ephesians. There's a... There's one spirit, there is one Lord, and there is one God. So, is it fair to assume (laughs) that Ephesians and Corinthians are speaking about similar concepts? Not saying exactly the same. Ephesians says there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope. 1 Corinthians 12 said there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same? Same spirit. Same with Lord, same with God. So there's something of a Trinitarian concept. Uh, Paul integrating the work of Father, Son, and Spirit. In Ephesians where he speaks about gifts and in Corinthians where he speaks about the expression of gifts. Why is this important? Because at no point does Paul ever address um, the work of the Spirit in that way, in isolation. That it's about integrating the work of the Father... Son, and Spirit. So the view of um, gifts not being part of church today is a nice idea. It's just not biblical. It's just not part of what the Bible speaks of. So I understand that some people feel that they could read. It's just not biblical. Every time, and, and, and I wish I had more time, but I, don't, I want you to see that when it comes to the Spirit, when it comes to Christ as Lord, when it comes to God as Father, it's an integration of the Trinity. Okay, so there's a few things that we need to consider. Those three references had three specific events um, that actually um, defined them. So Pentecost was the moment where the Spirit was released. Yay? nay. No? <laughs> Calvary, the work of? Jesus being um, explained in its full. Um, entirety and creation we saw God at work I love the fact that the Bible actually brings us to a place where we can consider the primary works of Father, Son and Spirit and ask what is the implication of all of them on us but then it becomes becomes interesting the question is what did they give And and the Bible is clear about that the Spirit gave what? gifts? the Lord gave Service and God is the one that activated, energizes all the works is connected to, to God. Now, I like to be as practical as possible when it comes to these things. Um, and that helps you just to stay aligned with what the Bible says. So, I went and looked at what they actually mean. So I said in verse 1, when it comes to gifts, it speaks about firstly pneumaticos or uh, uh, the second one, the gifts that the Spirit gives. That's the one in verse 4. It denotes extraordinary powers. It's amazing. That's the word. Martin, uh, Martin, denotes extraordinary, extraordinary powers, distinguishing Christians and enabling them to serve the church of Christ. I like that reference in the commentary. Uh, sort of felt, it's us. Um, it serves the church of Christ. The reception of the powerful divine grace operating in their souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's something in in the understanding of the the gifts were given and these gifts were directly connected to extraordinary powers. It was an enabling and empowering experience in terms of what was mentioned. And if you look, if you read further, the Bible is very clear that that's exactly what happened. The second one is um, service, Um, that it says the same Lord that gave service, it's the Greek word. Diakonos means ministries, ministry, mission, serve, service. It's, it's in that space that it's rendered. And then, um, but it's the same God who works in, in all. The two concepts there is, um, in, a, in a gamer, that speaks about God energizes operations, focusing on the results of God's energy in people living by faith. So could it be... <laughs> That a big part of Christianity was not just about what we're understanding, but about what we were doing. That there was something in terms of the outset of Christianity that what you believed was actually lived out. And a big part of the living out had to do with special abilities connected to the mission, the service, the ministry that God was called us to, and God actually activated the the work. So in two of those references, it speaks about being energize, something special, something divine, something that empowers. Is that fair? Just according to where, where that sits. So when I thought about this, I just wrote this little statement. It says, because God our Father is at work over all and in all and through all, we are called to serve or to minister in the mission of Christ our Lord, through the empowering gifts of His Spirit that enables us to be the presence of God in our world. Can I read that again? Because God our Father is at work over all, in all, and through all. So why do we pray for people in business this morning? <laughs> because we believe that God is invested in everything. Everything. We are called to serve, to minister in the mission of Christ our Lord. So it's not about me discovering my mission. It's actually me understanding Christ's mission and my calling into that. But in addressing that, we realize that we need the empowerment through the work of His Spirit. And He does that through His gifts that enables us to be the presence of God in our world. The presence of Christ in our world. Question is what happens if we miss either one of them? Because the biggest part I think um, that brings struggle to this conversation is that sometimes we separate each individual part of the Trinity. So we want to say, no, this is what God does. This is what Jesus does. This is what the Spirit does. And I think every time it speaks of the integration of all three. So one of the assumptions is, is could our healthy church be a church? that is completely focused on the mission of Christ, understands that God is in everything, and realizes its dependency on the empowerment of His Spirit in achieving that. Could that be true? (laughs) That's just questions that I ask myself. See, if we start separating these little concepts, God the Father and the Spirit and the Son, we fall into a trap where we choose by personal preference what we like about God and what we don't and then we start building churches based on personal preference it's probably something that ticks me off more than anything when someone comes to me and says I don't like, it's like honestly not building a church for you to like building a church to glorify God if you if you want to know what I'm trying to do is I have no intention of building a church that people say I want you to do that so that I can like it more it's, no, not going to happen. Because in my understanding, in the core of my being, I understand that the church needs to glorify God. And what we need to do as church is to say, how do I move away from my own personal preference into understanding that we need to build this in a way that it would bring ultimate glory to God. And that's not a perfect science. I think that's the kind of thing that we're invested with. And it is a, um, it's a humbling experience to think that you've got to build something that has to glorify God as, it outs, as it's outset So it's in this that we need to consider that all theology has to help us bridge the practice. What are we doing at the moment? What does the theory, the information say about that? And how does my practice change? How do I do something different based on my new understanding? If we're at practice and theory, but we don't move on, if something doesn't shift guess what we become, just clever, that's that's all, we just become clever, we can sit in good arguments, we can sit in good conversations, but if your practice doesn't go from practice to theory to a different expression of practice, then we're not changing because of the message, and I'm convinced that this message will constantly bring change to who we are, now this is probably the most important part, um, And this was deeply challenging to me. So for me, this was a mirror to Clinton. It's not just a mirror to church. But one of the things, and that's the theme of this morning's message, is the fact that I believe that God has called us to radical balance. Now, if we're called to radical balance, you can see that radical balance sits at that level. But there's certain other areas in life that we could easily gravitate to called nominal imbalance. Nominal imbalance is where we fall into the trap of dogmatic views of right and wrong. So this is right, this is wrong, end of conversation. Um, It's known for blunt rejection. People are unwilling to learn because of their imbalanced nominalism. They defend things with strong words, but the reality is there's no passion to it. When I read this, Um, And and there's a lot of work that was done in this. Um, The the notion of, the the question that I ask myself is, what of the life of Jesus, the prophets, the early church, what was the one thing that we could not accuse them of? You could not accuse them that they were vanilla. They actually had a radical balance to their life. And there's something about the nominal imbalance um, that brings us to a place where we are so afraid to commit to something that we have strong voices around what we're against. But we're not selling the real deal. We're not selling a life that people could actually look like, thinking, hey, I understand that's wrong, but I'm seeing in you something that's worth living for. That's that's the danger of nominal balance. The second one is when it comes to a radical imbalance. There's a slight improvement because there's a passion element to it but still unwilling to learn, and passion is only for their own spiritual expression. The radicalness is expressed in an imbalanced way, so it could either be overt fanatical balance on the one side, or having no passion on the other side. But they are, pas- they are passionate about their own view. Then we get nominal um, balance, where it's the ability to approach others at least with respect, Uh, But the balance isn't stable because it's nominal in nature. And I want to say it isn't stable because the Bible is not nominal. The Bible is radical. That the DNA of the word is not something that is vanilla. So if we're living a style of Christianity that falls to nominal balance, it's okay. It's just, it doesn't reflect the essence of what we were called to. And I want to take Christ as a standard, and I want to take the Bible as the standard, not my own personality type. That you could be passionate and radical, whatever your personality type. doesn't mean all of us are going to shout out and scream and do all of that, but at least it means we're radical, we're passionate. So there's still an unwillingness to learn from others, but at least there's the openness to understand. And one thing that we need to, to not confuse is don't confuse articulated benevolence with active support. Sometimes we can speak about something without actually supporting it. We're good with that. We've got all the best vocab, and it sounds like, hey, we've got this under control. But we're not expressing the life that we've been called to. Leads us to radical balance. I believe that's the goal of spiritual growth, that God hasn't called us to vanilla. It's demonstrated right through the Bible. The early church, if you look at what happened after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what did we see? Radical balance. The way they moved, the way they engaged um, their world. There was something of a demonstration of radical balance that brings us to a place that we've got to ask ourselves the question, what are we selling? What are we demonstrating to the world that we're in? If they look at us. Are we selling something of a radical commitment to the cause of Christ? In the way of Christ? And the rest of Corinthians speaks into that. Or have we fallen trapped? See, either one of the other three expressions. It's a mirror that you've got to ask yourself. Because as Paul continues on in the subject, he speaks about radical balance in a way that, firstly, you've got to understand that when it comes to the gifts, it should never be self-serving. That's a radical imbalance. One of the things that people use the gifts for was, I have the gift of tongues, and that means I'm more spiritual than all of you. And Paul actually deals with this. He says, hey, guys, it just doesn't make sense to people that don't know, and it doesn't make sense in corporate expressions. He says, when you exercise the gifts, when you operate in the gifts, just understand that he's not saying don't function in the gifts. He says, when you do this, he says, here's the principle. He says, um, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for common good. Now, interesting, last week we spoke about it. When um, Jesus came to the disciples and said to them, guys, it's good that I go away. Because if I go away, it's for your best. It's for your advantage. He actually uses the same Greek word. That it works for common good. It is for your benefit. That whole benefit, that that Greek word speaks about the fact that it takes all the loose pieces and integrates them together. So there's something in our understanding of what the Spirit gives in terms of the manifestation to To who does he give it? To each one. So so exclusion is self-exclusion. It's not God excluding. Is that fair to say? When you say that I don't want the gifts, it's not God saying, well, I'm not giving gifts to you. It's you excluding yourself. Because to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for common good. So your gift, what God has given you, has to be used for the benefit of others, whatever that looks like. And if we walk away from this, suddenly we just don't bring a lot of benefit to, to others. That's a key part of what Paul is saying. Now, in order for us to, to understand this well, Paul then transitions, um, or firstly addresses gifts, and I just want to say we don't have time that this morning but gifts comes in a variety of ways shapes forms ephesians 4 1 corinthians 12 romans 12 There's there's great lists and that's why we have the steps process if you want to ask the question if you're unsure about your gifts that's one of the reasons why we do steps it's for you to understand what is the gift that god has placed in you so that you can bring good to all if you don't know your gift (laughs) could mean that we're manufacturing we're trying to bring benefit, but it's not in alignment with what God's Spirit is doing in us. But then 1 Corinthians 13, Paul comes and he's, he brings this notion that love brings radical balance. That all gifts need to be exercised in understanding love. Now love three things that you need to understand about love. Firstly, what love is. What love is not, and what love always is. What is love? Love is patient, love is kind, and love rejoices with the truth. What love is not, now, you can choose where, or, I mean, it was good for me when I read through this, I realized there's one that stood out for me as Clinton. In that area, you don't show love. Um, Because love is not boastful, envious, proud, dishonoring, self-seeking. Easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, and does not delight in evil. So if there's any one of those things that comes very naturally to you, it's a good place to say, God, I need to understand your love more because I am easily this or that or that. But then the beauty is, what is love always? Love always protects, trusts, hopes, preserves, and it never fails. So the whole engagement on the gifts and the workings and the ministry, whatever, is all done within the understanding that love is the true context through which all of this flows. And that's why when Paul goes on to 1 Corinthians 14, he says, guys, when you gather, it doesn't make sense if there's a bunch of unbelievers in your midst and everyone's trying to speak in tongues. It just doesn't make sense to them. And how will they understand God? So principle, when you gather Do so in a way that makes sense to outsiders. Work order into it. We can't go all in our own direction. There has to be some structure, some order. But do it in a way that when outsiders comes in, that they would have some kind of understanding of what are you trying to do. And obviously then addresses the whole notion of speaking in tongues, which I want to say, when it comes to the topic of speaking in tongues, probably one of the most divisive issues in the church. Um, And I've, I've heard all, <laughs> that, well, you don't have to speak in tongues if you're a Christian, and I've heard, well, you're not a Christian if you speak in tongues, so I've heard, uh, we've been in church long enough. I think important to understand when it comes to speaking in tongues, there's three different expressions uh, that the New Testament speaks of. Firstly, um, Acts 2, when the Spirit was poured out, the squad that moved out of the upper room had the ability to speak in a different language, so that all the nations that were outside could understand God's work in their own native tongue they weren't school in the 10 days in the upper room on all languages in the world there was a divine ability that came on them in their mind they were speaking whatever but what people were hearing was the glory of God in their own native tongue then there's the gift of tongues which is the ability to speak in languages. And Paul says, it's not a gift of tongues if there isn't a interpretation. So there has to be, if it's publicly expressed, if the gift of tongues is publicly expressed, there has to be interpretation. Otherwise, it's just for personal benefit. It's just for you. And then he comes and he speaks about a third notion. So, Firstly, the divine ability, divine ability to speak in a different language. Are we all okay with that? Secondly, the gift of tongues that has to have a an interpretation. But then Paul goes in verse four, uh, chapter 14 and he says, speaks about the fact that um, there's a different one. There's a prayer language that brings benefit to the individual. And then he makes an interesting comment. He, he doesn't engage this conversation because he wants to take it out of the church. He wants to put it in its proper perspective. And then he says there's something when it comes to prayer language that is about me praying in the spirit and it edifies who? It edifies me. Now this is a weird concept for Western Christians, some of us. Because there's something in the space that, what are you saying? Saying that I'm going to speak something that I don't get. And you're saying that's prayer. No, I'm not. Brother Paul is saying that. And when you read in Romans 8, it actually says what is the benefit of that. But Paul comes and he makes a massive statement saying that I do this more than any of you. I pray in tongues more than any of you for self-edification. When Romans speaks of it, he says, it's prayer that is uh, turned into intercession by the Spirit, actually praying the perfect will of God. So when I struggled, and I want to say I struggled with this, it was a difficult thing for me initially to get into. I sort of was brought up in the environment, you have to pray in tongues. Until one day, I felt God challenged me with this question. Forget about you have to. Ask yourself the question, why wouldn't you want to? If if there's a blessing of being able to, pray in accordance with God's spirit. Prayer that the spirit then takes and intercedes before God. Prayer that connects to the perfect will of God. Prayer that edifies and uplifts self. The question that I had to ask myself is, if that is true, why wouldn't I want it? Not should I have it, must I have it. I don't think the Bible works on you have to or you don't have to. It's more a question of do you want it. And it's so much more than just the gift of tongues or the gift of of interpretation. Because that gift is specifically given by the Spirit for the assembly, for the people together. There's something different. And I had to deal with my own question. (laughs) How do I grapple with something like that? 15, 16 years in the journey, I can tell you that there is nothing that edifies me more than reading the Bible and in moments sitting and praying in my prayer language and allowing God's spirit to bring in me and to me what I won't be able to do with my own intellect. Because my mind is not my God. God is. In conclusion, worship team can come up. Paul in or in the conversation in Ephesians 5 he makes a statement he says be filled with the spirit <clears throat> just think about that be filled with the spirit what does that mean what's what's it logical conclusions that we can make out of that is it possible that there could be moments that we are not filled where we're We've got the Spirit, but it's not an overflowing reality in our lives. And what happens if we do that? Could it be that we function out of our own mind more than actually being influenced by God's Spirit? The question is, what does that mean for me to understand that Christ is in me? And and I want to say, um, this is not trying to get you to say, yes, I want you to say, to consider one thing. That God... There could be more to life and to Christianity than to, than to what I've experienced up until this point. And asking yourself the question, what does it look like? After today, Andrew and Sam's preaching next week, AJ, we're not going to continue on with this specific thing, but we would not be true to the whole conversation of being called, understanding the purpose of God and allowing us to understand how God empowers us for His purpose without addressing the fact that God invites us, the Bible invites us to the experience of being full with God's spirit. I don't want to take a shot at what it looks like, but it starts with just saying God, there could be times in my life where I'm empty. There could be moments in my life where I've tried to figure things out in my own and I think I'm doing good but actually it's more my mind than in response to what you are doing in me. What does that look like in church? What does it look like in my family in my business at school in my social engagements to actually live a life that is dependent on god's gifts god's ministries god's workings and whatever that means to empower me to be the christ presence that he's called me to one thing that i know that it's not is christianity isn't something that we can put in a box saying, I understand every detail of this. That I can promise you. And if you're at that place, that's probably the area that you need to consider more than anything else. If you have a grip on everything, that's the biggest concern. I think God sits outside of it. So I wanna just give you a moment to ask this question this morning. What does it mean for you to be filled with God's Spirit. What does it mean for the church to be filled with His Spirit? And if you're at a place saying that God, I don't understand all of this, but I definitely want to be in a space of you filling me with your presence, your Spirit, empowering me with your gifts, your working, your services. I want to pray for you. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you feel so. Say, God, I need your spirit. I need your son, and I need you. And I want to partner with what you're doing in my life. I want to invite you to stand with me. Father, I want to thank you for people standing this morning. Declaring their dependence on something that they don't have a complete grip on. And thank you, Lord, that that's our journey with you. That trying to understand the fullness of who you are, Lord, is, is, is us walking into the space of the impossible. But we know that you are God and we are not. We know that you work and we know that we want to be in step, synchronized with what you, with what you are doing. We know, Lord, that in your word, you've revealed yourself as a father, a God. You've revealed yourself through Christ the Son, and you've revealed yourself through the the Spirit. And this morning, Lord, I want to pray for people standing, uh, just declaring their willingness to say, God, if there's any part of you that we don't get, firstly, help us to become aware. Unveil our eyes. Help us to see the fullness of who you are specifically lord when it comes to paul's statement be filled with the spirit i want to pray lord that you would fill us with your spirit on a daily basis lord. i want to pray lord that the awareness of your presence your spirit within us will be such an overwhelming experience lord that it would bring us to a place of us functioning out of what flows from within knowing lord that when jesus spoke about Things like this, he says, said it would be like rivers of living water flowing out of your innermost being. So this morning, Lord, I want to pray for every person standing that feels empty, that feels dry, that feels that don't they don't know what it means and what it looks like to engage the world with your presence. I want to pray that you would fill them right now with your presence and with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.